Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 44 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm excited to welcome Michael Seifert, NASA project scientist for the U.S. contribution to the European Space Agency's Euclid mission. Based at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, Seifert is actively engaged in evaluating the performance of Euclid's near-infrared detectors and has been awarded Euclid Builder status as recognition for his contributions to the mission. He received his Ph.D. in physics from the University of California, Santa Barbara, in 1994. But today, among other things, we'll be discussing how the Euclid mission due for launch in 2022 will help astronomers finally understand the mystery of dark energy and maybe even dark matter. Seifert joins us from Pasadena. Mike, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Hi, Bruce. Great to be with you. So first off, uh, let's refresh listeners' memory with what astronomers mean by the term dark energy? Well, we've known since the 1920s that uh, the universe is expanding. And in the decades since then, our measurements of the universe have become better and better. Late in the 1990s, we were able to tell um, that the universe is, is not just expanding, but that the expansion is accelerating. And that was through a series of measurements of distant supernova. So that that expansion, that accelerated expansion is uh, was... I would say somewhat unexpected. Uh, it was a big deal, and uh, we gave it a name, and the name is dark energy. Um, it's not to say that we know exactly what the cause is, but uh, at the moment, that's the the name given to the fact, or the observational fact, that the expansion of the universe is accelerating. There's a couple of proposed explanations for it, but uh, at this point, we're still, I would say, largely in the dark about what dark energy really is. And so you are the NASA JPL project scientist for the upcoming European Space Agency's Euclid mission. And I tried to find uh, the cost of this thing. It's not cheap. I, I think it's up, probably now upwards of a billion U.S. dollars. Yeah, you're right. It's around a billion dollars. It's uh, mostly paid for by the European Space Agency. Back in uh, 2008, 2009, 2010, NASA... Uh, made an agreement with the European Space Agency to provide some of the key components for the mission. You know, maybe about uh, a few percent of the total cost of the mission. And exchange, uh, get access to the data, have uh, U.S. scientists participate in the mission, and basically join as a partner. And uh, that's been working extremely well. And does that mean that NASA is actually putting money into it, or is it totally funded? You're just putting your time and energy? and Time, energy, and some... Uh, uh, some contracts to U.S. Uh, manufacturers of infrared detectors and other electronic components, for example. So I was trying to imagine, I was walking around yesterday just getting some exercise, and I was thinking about, you know, probably your day-to-day -day workload before COVID <laughs> at, at, at the JPL labs. And I've been to JPL, but it's been a while. So uh, for people who were fans of the Big Bang Theory, the, the TV series, mm -hmm. uh, do you sit around... I guess you're doing a lot of metrology testing uh, for precision uh, lasers uh, in the infrared on these uh, the work uh, benches at JPL. Is that a lot of what you do? Is it is it is it kind of uh, what the 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 cast of the, uh, 
some of the casts of the J of the Big Big Bang Theory were actually doing on a day to day basis. Yeah, well, a bunch of us are are nerds for sure. Um, <laughs> I, didn't, oh, I, I didn't mean that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you know, uh, for for myself, I you know, uh, and a number of others that I work with, we divide our time among a, a couple of different things. Uh, there's testing detectors in large vacuum chambers where we are, control the detector in uh, in really precision conditions and examine the noise from the detector and its response to infrared light. Um, a lot of what we do is uh, planning for, you know, how part A from NASA works with part B from the European Space Agency. Uh, a lot of what we do is planning for uh, data analysis. So when we get the uh, data back from the Euclid mission, how will we analyze it? Which software tools will we use? A whole raft of different different activities and Every day is a little bit different. For, for most uh, NASA projects, there's a project manager, uh, and that person's responsibility is budgets, schedule, contracts with aerospace vendors, things like that. And then there's, in partnership with the manager, there's a project scientist who's responsible for the overall scientific performance of the project. And in the case of NASA's contribution to Euclid, that's me. And so Euclid is designed to accurately measure the expansion history of the universe, and the growth of cosmic structures over the past 10 billion years. It will constrain dark energy models, test general relativity, measure dark matter, and refine constraints on the initial conditions of the universe with unprecedented accuracy, which only a space-based experiment can deliver. That's, a, that's quite an ambitious set of science drivers. Are you at all daunted by that laundry list? Oh, absolutely. Um, but fortunately, it's not just me or a few colleagues working on this. Uh, there's a large team of some of the world's most talented scientists working together. In Europe alone, there's over a thousand scientists. Uh, in the U.S., we have over 80 who are participating in, in the planning for the mission and will participate in the in data analysis when we get results. And it's going to be launching on a Soyuz uh, spacecraft in the latter half of next year. Uh, is a launch window from July or have you moved it back? Yeah, it's no earlier than September 2022 at the moment. Uh, it may slip further than that. Uh, you know, there's a number of, of things going on at the moment in terms of testing the integrated spacecraft with all of its uh, instruments. So we'll have to see how that goes. Uh, COVID has been a little bit of a hit to the schedule. Um, some things were going a little slower than hoped for, but uh, all in all, we've managed to make progress in the last year. I think probably later this summer we'll have a a better idea of, uh, of what the schedule is going forward. And so it's going to be operating from the Earth-Sun Lagrangian point, or L2. Can you explain what that is and why that's important? Sure. Um, so the L2 point, the uh, second Lagrange point, uh, I guess Lagrange was a, was a, a mathematician back in the uh, 18th century who came up with a, a description of various orbits around the Earth. The Sun-Earth L2 point is a, a distant point way beyond the orbit of the moon. It's a, about a million miles away. And it's a great place for uh, satellite missions and um, astronomy telescopes that need an ultra-stable environment. And by ultra-stable, I mean something that's very stable in temperature. So if you're out at the L2 point, you have in one direction the Earth, the moon, the sun... And in the other direction, uh, mostly deep space. And that's just great if you're trying to ma make a, an experiment work that needs very, a very stable thermal environment. 
By contrast, if you can imagine like the Hubble Space Telescope, that's in orbit uh, around the Earth, and it passes into the sunlight and into the darkness and into the sunlight, and the moon rises and sets. All of that um, presents a changing thermal environment, and uh, that can be quite challenging for some of the precision measurements that we're interested in. And so the Euclid uh, is going to be using a 1.2-meter Korsh uh, telescope with a large field of view. Uh, what is a Korsh telescope? Right. So uh, again, here I'll, I'll uh, describe the difference between the Euclid design and uh, the Hubble Space Telescope design, which uh, maybe some of your listeners ha have heard about. Uh, with Hubble, uh, it uses two uh, shaped reflecting mirrors. Hubble has a 2.4 meter diameter outer uh, uh, outer diameter for its mirror. That's, uh, I guess, about eight feet. Euclid has a smaller telescope. It's only about four feet across, but it uses three reflecting surfaces. Um, and Korsh was this guy back in the 70s who worked out um, some mathematical solutions for a variety of designs that have a much better image quality across a large field of view. So with the Hubble telescope, it has excellent uh, image resolution, great light gathering capability, um, but really only over a very narrow uh, uh, field of view. Uh, with the extra third mirror on Euclid, we can do that. Uh, we can do very high quality imaging over a larger field of view. So even though the telescope is less powerful, has less uh, precise angular resolution in the Hubble, we have about 13 times the, uh, the field of view of Hubble. And that's part of the key of, of Euclid in surveying a large part of the sky. And so from, you, uh, from ESA's mission study white paper, uh, the space agency notes that Euclid surveys will show how cosmic acceleration modifies the expansion history and the three-dimensional dist distribution of matter in the universe. So to achieve this, Euclid will measure the shapes of over a billion galaxies with accurate redshifts to tens of millions of galaxies using weak gravitational lensing and galaxy clustering studies. Tell us why that's important and, and differentiate between these, the weak gravitational lensing and the clustering studies. Right. So let me try to break this down into two pieces. So first I'll, I'll tell you about the weak gravitational lensing. Uh, so uh, you can't see dark matter with a conventional telescope. Uh, but what you can do with Euclid is detect the subtle distortion of the shapes of distant galaxies uh, that are caused by dark matter between us and those distant galaxies. Basically, the dark matter that's between us and a distant galaxy uh, can bend the light uh, gravitationally of the light that's coming from that distant galaxy. And that provides a subtle distortion of the shape of that galaxy. And that, that's what we call weak gravitational lensing. We don't know the answer. We don't know uh, what the shape of that galaxy was to begin with. But by studying millions and millions and, and in fact, billions of galaxies, uh, we can look at the correlation in this distortion from one spot on the sky to another. And that tells us about the structure of dark matter that's between us and those distant galaxies. It turns out that this weak gravitational lensing technique is an excellent way to map out how much dark matter there is at a variety of distances between us and some uh, very distant galaxies. And to break it down, uh, the distribution of this matter and normal matter in the universe uh, you know, it seems like every two weeks somebody is changing the percentages. <laughs> I've, I've even known, noticed it within 
their own documentation for Euclid that the percentages of dark energy and dark matter, usually the normal baryonic matter, the you know the the tabletops or kitchen cabinets, uh, you know the stuff uh, the stuff that we are actually made of our own flesh and blood, that's normal matter. But this weird stuff that we don't even know what it is, the percentages keep changing. Am I wrong on that? Because uh, one of the documents said that seventy percent. 76% of the universe is in the form of dark energy with uh, 20% being dark matter. But then I've also seen 70% is dark energy, 69% dark energy, and then 24, 26% dark matter. What it boils down to is only 4 or 5% of the universe is in normal, so, no, so-called normal matter. Yeah, so uh, so that's about right. Um so the the uh, the percentages do uh, bop around a little bit depending on uh, both what the most recent measurements are, what the error bars are, what techniques were involved. I think um, the latest numbers from the Planck mission, which I think probably is one of our best constraints, puts the percentage around seventy-two percent for dark energy. Um, but if you just take a step back, it's just an amazing testament. That uh, to the progress that we've made in astronomy over the past hundred years. You look look back in 1920, we were just discovering that the universe was expanding, and today we're arguing about a few percent in some component that we don't even know what it is. Uh, it's just a, just astounding, actually, uh, when you uh, try to think about the larger picture. In terms of those percentages, uh, you know, it's been a combination of Planck and other ground-based experiments. I think one of the goals w- with Euclid is to really pin this down in a way that uh, uh, is more precise, more accurate, and uh, is cross-checked in a number of ways, and people really have some uh, uh, feel that the evidence is really strong for them. Periodically, their papers, you know, at least once every three or four months, that come out that question dark energy, particularly dark matter, not so much. Uh, dark energy, uh, they do. You do see papers continually that are questioning its existence. I know you're not a theoretical physicist. You're you're, you're experimental cosmologist, but what is is your own gut sense? How do you think this is all going to shake out? Do you think it is going to be, you know, once this mission is over, do you think uh, we're going to come away and say, hey, you know, this dark matter is this and that, and dark energy is this and that. Here are the percentages. We we feel certain about this. Or or, or is this going to lead us to something beyond uh, Einstein in terms of physics as we know it? Yeah, I think uh, th- there's a couple of parts to your question. Um, I think the uh, the evidence for dark matter is very strong. There are some people who want to try to construct a, a model of the universe that doesn't have dark matter in it. I, I think the evidence for uh, dark energy, or, or maybe I would step back and call it the, the evidence for um, accelerated expansion of the universe, I think that's a little less strong than the evidence for dark matter, but I still think it's really good. I think it's it's strong enough that um, the European Space Agency was willing to put a, a lot of money behind a major mission. It's uh, The evidence is strong enough that it's uh, got the interest and participation of over a thousand scientists. So so I, I feel like the evidence is strong and will be, get stronger with the results of the mission. And so... Um, at low redshift, Euclid is going to resolve the stellar population of all galaxies within five megaparsecs. Just how far away is that? 
Five megaparsecs. <laughs> Five megaparsecs. Uh, a parsec is 3.2 uh, light years. Uh-huh. So... Five megaparsecs is 15 million light years. A light year is about six trillion miles. So uh, you multiply all of those things together, 15 million trillion miles, something like that. It's a big enough number that, uh, you know, it's hard to have any real day-to-day conception of what kind of distance that is. Um, In terms of uh, what we think about in astronomy and uh, cosmology, that's relatively nearby. But uh, does that will that include most of the local group of galaxies? It will, um, and so trying to understand the the stellar populations that that basically means what kind of stars are there in these lo- local galaxies? What is their distribution in age, size, temperature? Uh, um, what are they mostly hydrogen, or how much of other elements do they have in them? Uh, that's what we mean by stellar population studies. And that, that's not really what Euclid is designed for, um, but because Euclid is going to study a large part of the sky with very capable instruments, this is just a really happy byproduct of, uh, of the main goals of the mission. It's also going to explore the formation and evolution of our own Milky Way galaxy. How, how will it be able to do that? Right. So um, one, of the, one of the recent uh, developments um, in the past 20 years or so has been this modeling of the Milky Way as a site where small satellite galaxies uh, are in orbit around the Milky Way, and uh, they become uh, uh, stretched out, and we, we call it tidally disrupted, and that just is a fancy word for saying that the gravitational field of the Milky Way tends to uh, chew up and, and spread out the stars in these uh, small satellite galaxies. And if you just look up in the sky with your telescope, it's not always obvious what uh, which stars are the main part of the Milky Way disk and which stars are part of these tidal streams. Uh, but by studying how far away the stars are, what their colors are, uh, what direction they're moving, how fast they're moving, um, one can start to build a picture of which stars are in the plane of our own uh, Milky Way and which, which stars are ones that are part of these streams that are passing through and represent the uh, digested remnants of uh, Milky Way of of satellites around the Milky Way that are getting gobbled up. By putting all of that together and trying to run the clock backwards in simulations, we can try to build a picture of how many of these small satellite galaxies were around the Milky Way, how uh, how many get um, gobbled up over time, what the Milky Way looked like five billion years ago, ten billion years ago. It's that sort of thing that we hope to do with uh, some of those studies. I'm certainly not an expert in that area, but I find it really fascinating to to think that we can uh, uh, study stars and in, nearby our own galaxy and from that be able to tell something about the initial conditions of our Milky Way, how much dark matter there is in the Milky Way, and what the what the history was. You will, Euclid will also be able to uh, probe the history of our own Milky Way halo. What is the halo of our galaxy and, and how will Euclid... Uh, help us better understand it. Yeah, that's that's part of the same study that I was just talking about. Um, so when we say halo, what we mean is uh, you can think of the Milky Way as having a couple of components. Uh, there's the main main disk of the Milky Way. That's uh, you know when you look up at night, you can see the Milky Way. That's the uh, that's the plane of the disk of the Milky Way. Uh, there's a small bulge in the middle of the Milky Way. Of course, there are spiral arms as well that we hard to see from our position on Earth. 
Uh, but then surrounding Milky the Milky Way, you should think of a giant uh, a sphere or ellipsoid that um, has very few stars, and a bunch of dark matter, and forms some of the uh, potential well or gravitational field of the Milky Way. And exactly how that profile, um, how that gravitational field changes with distance, uh, what, what its shape is, is it spherical, is it oblate or ellipsoidal? Um, some of those things are things that we can, we can hope to see by studying the history of these uh, infalling uh, small satellite galaxies that uh, were in orbit around the Milky Way and are in the process of getting chewed up. And what do you mean by the term oblate in that sense? Uh, yeah, so uh, oblate and prolate are mathematical terms for, uh, for ellipsoids. Uh, um, you think of little M&Ms or little footballs. You know, it's not quite a, a beach ball. It's squashed in one way or the other. That's what we mean by oblate or prolate. And while we're uh, talking about the Milky Way, you're also uh, the data... I mean, the uh, description also mentions that Euclid will help us probe the solar system itself. Uh, will it, uh, tell us about that, because I, I had no idea it was going to do that either. Yeah, I, I don't generally spend a lot of time thinking about this, but it is quite fascinating. Um, so because Euclid is sensitive and has a large field of view, it'll be excellent at picking up some nearby objects as well. E Euclid is designed to see these very distant galaxies, and so... Because of that, we don't generally point, we won't be generally pointing the telescope in the plane of our own solar system, right? So the, the planets in our solar system, you can think of them uh, orbiting the sun in, in roughly the same uh, plane. And then with Euclid, we'll be looking uh, at some angle with respect to that plane so that we're not looking through a lot of the dust that's in our own solar system. That, that dust has a tendency to emit uh, radiation and to scatter sunlight. And those things uh, tend to uh, um, add additional noise to the uh, measurement of distant galaxies. So we, tr we tend to avoid that. We think that a lot of the asteroids in our solar system are also in the plane of the solar system. But they're still expected to be a, a fairly large number, tens of thousands, that uh, are not strictly in the plane of the solar system, but at some angle, and that Euclid will pick them up. Um, and so from... From Euclid, we hope to be able to uh, measure, you know, just how common that is, how how it um, varies with angle outside of the plane, how different asteroids of different sizes, how common those are, things like that. Let's say that NASA alerts us to a potentially an asteroid or comet that could be a near-Earth impactor. It might might uh, pose a threat to Earth. Would Euclid be able to to follow up? and give us a better uh, trajectory of the, a better orbit on such an object? It, possibly. It, it's not extremely well designed for that purpose, and NASA is pursuing other missions uh, that I think will be better for that sort of thing. Okay. Um, there's also a number of ground-based experiments that will do that. So uh, uh, yes, possibly, uh, though not ideally. Let's step back and talk about the conception of this Euclid mission. Uh, the first paper I've seen, I saw attached to this was t uh, 2011, so that's a, a good 10 years. But I, I assume it's been probably in the works, what, uh, since when the Planck mission, you were involved with the U European Space Agency's Herschel Planck mission, I believe, and mm -hmm. you, were, you were a team member, a science team member on that. I assume that before that Planck mission ever even launched, which was also a cosmology mission, somebody was going out and having a beer and say, hey, what's the next thing we ought to be doing? And, and probably the the seeds for 
for Euclid were planted then, right? Yeah, I think uh, it stretches stretches back even during the prime of the of the Planck mission. I think um, there were a couple of groups in Europe and and a group in the U.S. that were studying, uh, you know, what the next step uh, should be with uh, um, uh, for measuring dark energy from space. Um, I think that some of that some of those studies extend back to 2005 or so. A couple of those groups came together, I think, back in uh, 2008, something like that, to start formally studying something called Euclid. Uh, there were some initial studies around 2009. I joined in 2010. And then uh, by 2012, I think that's when the European Space Agency gave, uh, gave approval to start the construction phase of the project. And so, yeah, it's, uh, most of these missions consume a... a uh, a number of years and the better part of a career for many scientists. And you actually have been involved in formally at least since when? On this since 2010. Since 2010, so a good uh, so 11 years. And the project is named for the uh, Greek uh, mathematician uh, Euclid, uh, who who was a geometer, right? That's right. Um, yeah. So uh, Euclid, uh, maybe some of your uh, listeners will remember from a high school geometry class. Uh, you know, came up with some of the basic rules of geometry. And because Euclid will study the structure of the universe on large scales and what the expansion history is, what dark energy is, what dark matter is, and a lot of those things are wrapped up with uh, the geometry of space-time, uh, they decided to uh, honor Euclid by naming the mission after him. And you actually are, are now have builder status on this project. So take us back to, to the beginning when you were discussing the design of the telescope uh, that would be on Euclid, the instruments, how does that actually work? Uh, what's the first priority when you are actually at, at, you know, you have a blank page in front of me and, and you're doing your conference calls or whatever, and you're, you're saying, Hey guys, we need to have this, or, you know, can we have this, or is that possible or not? How does that work? Yeah. So it's a great question. Um, you know, I think that the, the key for, for a lot of these uh, science missions is trying to get the right balance between uh, scientific ambition and the practical realities of um, technology, cost, what you can actually do in space, how long it'll take to build things. Uh, so it's a giant balancing act. Um, you know, there's plenty of people who wish that Euclid was even more capable. It had a big, you know, wish that it had a bigger mirror, had uh, instruments that did more things. And there were people who were worried about the cost and the schedule and wanted to have fewer things and to not rely on new technology. Um, so at the initial design stage, that's the time when you make those hard decisions about how ambitious are you going to be versus how practical and rea realistic do you have to be? What's the right balance between those? And uh, if you're not ambitious enough, you get a blasé mission. Uh, nobody wants to do that. <laughs> if you're really ambitious, you get a really exciting mission, but then maybe it's really challenging to build. And so trying to strike that balance is, uh, is really part of the, the main part of the game at the initial stages. I noticed uh, that the, uh, the launch for the mission was originally scheduled for 2018. And obviously, you know, it's three years late. So the, there's no single cause of that. I, I think this is just an example of how with a really complex mission, some things take uh, longer than expected. Uh, I think in Euclid's case, there were some difficulties with uh, uh, this very precise optical bench that the optic sits on. on. There were some initial problems with the uh, initial of a variety of detectors. 
Uh, there were some electronics issues, just a number of garden variety issues that just sort of popped up that, uh, that slowed things down. I think if, you know, if we were building something less ambitious, we would have had less risk in the schedule, but, uh, also, uh, by being ambitious, we have something that's really exciting. So, uh, I think, and I hope we got the balance right. Um, and, and so the uh, nominal we'll mission, uh, I mean, is it five years, uh, 10 years? So the nominal lifetime oper- of operation will be what? Five years? Yes. So it's, it's planned for six years. Six years. Uh, okay. And basically it's going to spend that whole six years surveying about a third of the sky. So the telescope will be looking at one patch of the sky, then moving on to another for six years. Uh, there's some amount of what we call expendables. Uh, so that means uh, propulsion fuel, um, some stored cold gas and other things that the spacecraft will consume over the life of the mission. Mm-hmm. So we have a bunch of extra of that. So we have enough fuel and other things to keep the mission running for six years plus spare for probably another five years or so. So we'll when we get to six years, we'll see how things are performing. The, the detectors will experience some radiation damage uh, from cosmic rays over the life of the mission. Um, but I think we're hoping that uh, if all goes well, we'll get to six years and still be able to keep going after that. You note that uh, Euclid augments the Gaia survey, which is still on orbit, uh, taking uh, taking Gaia's measurements uh, several magnitudes deeper and provides complementary information, adding infrared colors and spectra for every Gaia star it observes. So why is that important and what will it tell us? And tell us right. tell us what the Gaia mission is and br- briefly and then how Euclid is is going to expand on it. So Gaia is a mission meant uh, largely to measure stars in our own uh, Milky Way and, and principally near nearer by stars, um, whereas Euclid is really designed to measure uh, distant galaxies in order to better understand uh, dark matter and dark energy. Um, but it turns out that um, when you try to look at distant galaxies, you find out that there's a lot of nearby stars between us and the distant galaxies. So it's just sort of a natural bypa- uh, byproduct of Euclid to see some of these same stars. Because Euclid is so sensitive, it will be able to detect some stars that are fainter than Gaia does and also uh, observe them at different wavelengths, and that helps build a picture of what kind of stars they are. The mission goals of Gaia were quite different. Uh, That was a mission that was meant to measure the location and also the the proper motion of, of a variety of stars in our own galaxy. And by proper motion, I mean... You look at a star, you wait a little while, and you measure it again, and you find out that it's moved a little bit. Um, it's a really small effect. You can't see it with your own eye or with your with your backyard telescope. If you wait tens of thousands of years, you'd be able to see it with your eye, but we don't want to wait that long. So, uh, and so the proper our, motion is is uh, across our line of sight. So that's it's not, right. It's not the radial velocity which measures how, uh, uh, which is uh, along our line of sight. So, in other words, a, a distant star coming towards us or going away, redshifting or blue shifting. That's exactly right. Okay. That's exactly right. Um, so, so Gaia is great at measuring that transverse motion. Um, Euclid wasn't designed to do that, but I think we'll be able to, uh, and probably will not be great at measuring that proper motion, but we'll be able to measure some of those same stars and gain uh, additional insight into uh, the size and the age of some of those stars. So that's helpful to some of those other science objectives. And so uh, Euclid will also explore the seeds of cosmic structure. And now what do you mean by that and how can it do that? 
Right. So uh, one thing that we we see in the distant universe uh, through measurements of the uh, cosmic microwave background is that you know 13 billion years ago that there weren't any stars, there weren't any galaxies. There was hot gas and dark matter and photons and and some other things, um, and and actually quite smooth. And uh, by contrast, you look around us today, we have the Milky Way, we have our own sun, we have Earth and Moon and Mars. Uh, so maybe you'd say that today you look around, things are a little lumpier than they were 13 billion years ago. So how did we get from there to here? Well, part of the standard answer for that is that there were some uh, locations in the distant universe that were just a little bit more dense, had a little bit more clumpiness of matter and dark matter uh, than other regions. And the regions that were a little bit more dense had a little bit more gravity to attract other things that were nearby. And so over the uh, 13 billion years from then to now, gravitational attraction has pulled stuff in and made stuff clumpy. And uh, by seeds of cosmic structure, we mean, you know, what, what were those initial regions that were slightly more dense? How were they distributed? You know, what did they look like in a statistical sense? You know, our, our current theory for that is that those initial seeds of cosmic structure formation were small perturbations in density driven by uh, quantum fluctuations in the very early universe. Um, but really trying to, to nail that down better is uh, one of the goals of Euclid. As we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, quantum fluctuations are what uh, cosmologists think that their, our universe uh, actually came from. And how can you get something from nothing, in other words? <laughs> Which is both yeah. a philosophical question and a scientific question, I guess, all at once. Yeah, so we, we can't see that far back with Euclid. Um, but we, what we can see are, are distant galaxies that, that uh, resulted sometime after that. So even though we can't uh, probe directly what the physics of those quantum fluctuations are, we hope to see what the consequences were in terms of how did those initial seeds grow into regions that eventually became... Uh, galaxies and clusters of galaxies, etc. So, although not a direct view, um, I think we can put some limits on on what what happened in the very early universe, um, and uh, so that's part of the goal. And you, in your uh, Planck work uh, on the Planck mission, you actually told me, I believe, that you had actually looked closely at the temperature temperature variations of the cosmic microwave background. Yeah, that's right. The, the, those small, so the cosmic microwave background is, is radiation uh, that's left over in the very early phases of the universe. Uh, and it reaches us now as radio waves. And what we can do is, is look at one part of the sky and look at a nearby part of the sky and see how uh, the intensity of those radio waves varies uh, across the sky. And those intensity variations are tied pretty closely to the various uh, density variations there were in the early universe. So uh, we can uh, use uh, the, the cosmic microwave background, um, look for variations at the, at the uh, few parts per million level. And that tells us about the very small density perturbations in the early uni universe. We actually detect it uh, in the microwave spectrum, the same spectrum that obviously operates... Uh, uh, with cell phone towers and and your microwave oven, right? But I don't know where on the spectrum you would detect the CMB, but is that right? Yeah, that's right. You know, the I think a microwave oven is at, at two-something gigahertz. 
It turns out that we have a lot of uh, radio waves from our own galaxy in some of that same wavelength range. So for the CMB, we typically observe at somewhat uh, higher frequencies and shorter wavelengths. So uh, uh, 30 gigahertz to uh, 300 gigahertz is sort of the typical range for uh, CMB observations. So back to Euclid itself, it's going to map uh, large-scale structure over more than 75% of the age of the universe. I mean, that's, 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 that's pretty extraordinary. Uh, and one of the methods it's going to be using, which we didn't discuss, are so-called baryonic acoustic oscillations, BAO. The idea here is that um, when you, if, if you make a map of the 3D positions of galaxies uh, throughout our universe... Um, maybe your first guess would be that those positions are kind of random, or maybe another guess would be that they're, they're all clumped in a, in a certain location. Uh, but what we find is something in between. Um, basically, the, the parts of the universe that were just a little bit more dense in the distant universe are a little bit more likely to, find, uh, to form a galaxy in that region. And so by looking at the structure on very large scales of where galaxies formed, where there are voids, where there are uh, so-called filaments or cosmic web densities, uh, you can actually measure something that doesn't look random. It looks more like a foamy structure. And if we apply some statistics to that, we can come up with a particular length scales that uh, tell us uh, what the distribution in the very early universe must have been. And by comparing the structure of, uh, of the galaxies that we see um, that's, uh, you know, maybe only uh, half the distance uh, back to the big, uh, back to the cosmic microwave background. We, we compare the structure of those galaxies to the structure that we see in the CMB. And uh, we can use that to figure out how the universe evolved between the time of the CMB, 380,000 years after the Big Bang, to uh, something like, uh, you know, a few billion years ago. And that tells us about dark matter and dark energy. There are two big, huge structures in the universe that were, I believe, discovered in the 60s and 70s, or maybe it was the 70s. Uh, one is uh, the Boss Great Wall, uh, which, was a, which was an all-sky survey, if I'm not incorrect, uh, which was first observed in the 70s. And it's still the single largest structure known in the observable universe. Uh, named for the study that spotted it, the Baryon, Oscillation Spectroscopic Survey. It consists of cosmic webbing that spans a billion light years and kind of looks like a grand honeycomb. Yes, such structures, uh, when they were first detected, were really surprising. I mean, we thought that maybe galaxy positions would be a little bit more random. And then we saw these large structures and we said, you know, oh my, what's going on here? Um, But I think we now understand some of those large structures as the natural consequence of of some of the um, very small uh, density st- structures in the early universe, uh, gathering matter towards them through gravitational attraction, the universe evolving since that early universe, and forming more and more galaxies in those slightly more dense regions. So um, in other words, and, so th- there's a link between these quantum fluctuations, a trillionth of a trillionth of a second at the beginning of the universe, and that kind of like an imprint, if you think of a of a silicon chip and it has like microscopic uh, p- patterns on it. And then you have inflation, which blows up the universe. I mean, I, I expands the universe in a trillionth of a trillionth of a second, maybe even more less than that. 
what you're saying is there is an actual link between these huge billion light year structures of galaxy clusters that look like a cosmic web and something that was imprinted uh, at the at the in the first second of the universe Am I yeah right? it's yeah it's really mind blowing is isn't it it's just just absolutely amazing that theory is holding I, up really well at the moment so how would you better describe that that I, I didn't i don't know if i did a pretty good job but what am i missing I think that's that's uh, essentially correct. You know that we had a period of very rapid expansion in the very early universe that we call inflation that uh, took those tiny quantum fluctuations and blew them up uh, m by you know a, a very large factor. You know, one with uh, twenty zeros after it, something like that. And then even after that, the universe has progressed through expansion and cooling and gravity pulling matter together to form galaxies and that those quantum fluctuations that were a little bit more dense uh, 13.7 billion years ago are, are more likely to be the sites of clusters of galaxies today. Yeah, it's, it's uh, pretty mind-blowing. Now, is there any evidence that the universe is fractal? In other words, uh, Benoit Mandelbrot uh, actually put forth the idea that the universe maybe have a fractal nature on large scales and... and uh, uh, something fractal simply means there, there are patterns in nature that you see both in leaves, on trees, and, and in plants, and also in geography here on Earth. You can even see fractal uh, fractals. Uh, can, can you explain that for us? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I can try. Um, <laughs> so the universe is, is fractal in a way. Um, and by fractal, I usually think of fractal as meaning if you take a picture of something and you zoom in a bunch and look at it again, um, it sort of looks that's the same. You can't really tell how zoomed in you are or zoomed out you are by looking at the picture. And that's because the structure, you zoom in and the things that were small becomes big, but then you see new small things that look just like the previous small things. Um, so that's what I think about for, in terms of fractal structure. And that's what a, um, a Mandelbro, um uh, published about and has some just absolutely gorgeous uh, um, pictures of some mathematical objects that that uh, that look like that. And when I say in a way for for our universe, what I mean is, um, you know, on on everyday scales on Earth, um, the universe I would say is not d doesn't look amazingly fractal. You know, you look at the you know your neighborhood or your Earth, uh, uh, the Earth surrounding your neighborhood. Um, it doesn't look like the Milky Way. And, uh, and in the same way, the solar system and the rest of the Milky Way don't look exactly the same. You can tell if you're looking in the Milky Way plane or if you're looking out of the Milky Way plane. But if you start going up a few powers of 10 uh, at larger scales above that, then and you look at the distribution of galaxies, then you start to, to see something that looks a little bit more fractal where uh, it's more difficult to see how zoomed in you are or zoomed out you are because there is some uh, structure on small scales and big scales that changes as you zoom in and zoom out. And uh, when you get to the very largest scales, then then perhaps that breaks down again. So, uh, so I think my answer to your question is, in a way, on some scales, the universe does look fractal. Um, and on other scales, uh, not so much. And so to understand dark energy... Someone has written that you really need to understand its equation of state. What do you mean by that? 
Yeah, so the equation of state is a is a fancy way to characterize dark energy in terms of its pressure and density. And by equation of state, we usually mean the, the ratio of, of pressure to density. Um, and so you might think of, um, say, a basketball that has some density to it, um, and it doesn't have a lot of pressure to it. Um, on the other hand, you take a um, high-pressure gas in a, in a um, helium balloon, for example, um, that has uh, a little bit of density, not so much because it's light, um, but it does have some pressure in it. It's confined to this uh, uh, balloon. It's a little bit more abstract when, you, when we start talking about dark energy because we don't know exactly uh, exactly what, that, that, uh, what we mean by dark energy. But one way to characterize it is as an additional component in Einstein's equations of general relativity. And there we just take that extra component and we characterize it by its pressure and density. And that's what we mean by the equation of state. So just to sum up about you know, what uh, Euclid is going to tell us about dark energy and dark matter, uh, I'm not really clear on how Euclid is going to tell us exactly what dark energy could be. I mean, I can understand how it's going to get more precise measurements of it, but how is it going to actually, how are you going to actually at the end of the day, 10 years from now, be able to stand up at a conference and do a PowerPoint presentation and, and someone's going to say from Euclid and, and, you know, ground-based measurements, we determined that dark energy is blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so it's a, it's a good question, um, you know, and it's certainly possible that all we'll you know after ten years of hard work, we'll all we'll really know is uh, tighter error bars on what it could be, and not really uh, not really exactly what it is. Uh, I think that's a a, a very plausible outcome. Um, it might help to sort of think about what what sorts of things it could be, and and how Euclid might constrain that. So one possibility for for dark energy is. There's just an extra term in Einstein's equations of relativity, and uh, it's an extra property of space, maybe something that high-energy physics theorists come up with. By looking at how fast the universe is expanding at a variety of different distances and how quickly uh, the, the uh, gravitational infall is uh, around clusters of galaxies is balanced by the expansion of the universe, maybe from some of those observations, we can tell if that's the correct approach. Um, Another possibility for dark energy is that it's an, an, a modification of Einstein's equations themselves, that maybe, maybe the equation breaks down on very large scales. Maybe there's, a, an extra, there's an extra component of those equations corresponding to uh, additional um, dimensions or something. And in that case, maybe we'll start to see hints of how uh, Einstein's equations don't work when we look on very large scales with uh, billions of galaxies. I, I think it, it's possible that we won't be able to det uh, determine between those scenarios, but um, possibly we will be. Uh, but for sure, we'll be able to put tighter error bars on the possibilities. And uh, that's what we're working towards at the moment. And the same question for dark matter, uh, you know, there are experiments here on Earth and in deep underground laboratories looking for you know, some hypothetical uh, particle of dark matter, matter, which heretofore has not been detected. And so uh, simply by measuring galaxies and galaxy clustering and weak lensing of these galaxies, um, how are you going to be able to say, I mean, I, I understand you, you know, you'll be able to see how dark matter 
affects the clusters of galaxies and the structure over cosmic time. But how are you going to be able to say exactly what composes dark matter any more than we are today? Yeah, probably Euclid is not great for telling us um, precisely what the dark matter particle is. And I I think most of us believe that the dark matter is some particle from high energy physics that will eventually be detected. Uh, Probably the direct detection is something that will happen in a laboratory on Earth. Uh, What we can hope to do with some of these astronomy measurements is uh, measure how much of it there is, uh, how clumpy it is, Maybe we can get hints of whether it interacts with itself, um, things like that. I, I think it's unlikely that we'll be able to tell exactly what it is from Euclid. I think we're just more likely to be able to tell what the properties are. And, uh, and that may, in fact, help guide what experiments in, in uh, Earth laboratories are the best suited for directly detecting it. So what puzzles you most about uh, the structure of the visible universe? Right. So uh, I think... Um, puzzle is a good word. I, you know, there's parts of it that are awe-inspiring. And uh, for the puzzle, I think it's really, um, are Einstein's equations of general relativity, are those a correct description of of physics and reality on large scales? And uh, and does that explain some of the structure we see in the visible universe? I think that's that's a puzzle that I hope will get solved in my lifetime. It's not guaranteed that it will, um, but... Uh, that's that's something that I think is just really fascinating. So finally, when you look up uh, at a clear night sky, what goes through your head? Oh, I, I love doing that. You know, I like camping and I like backpacking. Um, and in the summer, uh, you know, after I set up my tent or sleeping bag, I like to lay on a rock and just stare up at the sky for a while. Um, I, I think it's beautiful. I think it's awe-inspiring. I think it's humbling. Um, I just, just love it. And... Uh, um, each, each time that I do that, I can't believe that it's been so long since the last time I did it. So <laughs> those are some of the things going through my head. So Mike, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more? Sure. Uh, you can use my work email, which is michael.seifert, uh, S-E-I-F-F-E-R-T at jpl.nasa.gov. I don't use a lot of social media, but, um, Occasionally, I'm on Twitter, and you can find me at Astro at, at AstroCyphert. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at BruceDormany.Podbean.com or at BDormany on my Twitter feed. Michael Seifert, thanks for giving us a better understanding of the Euclid spacecraft. Hi, Bruce. Th- thanks very much. It was great to be with you. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at BDormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM.